Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Smile, more red light cameras are on the way. It was just a truck. We look back at the murder of Tim Bosma. We have all the information that you need to know about Bill C-11. Hamilton opens its doors this weekend. The producer of the Hamilton Films movie The End of Sex joins us on the show. And we recap the Maple Leaf series opening loss. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. My message has always been pretty simple. If you don't want a ticket, then don't speed or don't run a red light. And if you do, then take your personal responsibility that comes with it. Sounds understandable. Councillor J.P. Danko at uh, this week's Hamilton Public Works Committee chiming in on the installation of more red light cameras that are going to be installed throughout Hamilton. More photo radar coming to a bunch of new locations in the city as well. And uh, here to talk about it is Mike Field, Acting Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. Mike, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. So earlier this week, Public Works Committee approving 10 new red light cameras at local intersections. And that's going to bring, I believe, the citywide total to 52. And photo radar cameras are going to be rotated through 24 new locations in the city over the next two years. Now, this still has to be rubber stamped by City Council, but it looks like it's going to happen. How many intersections now have red light cameras? Or, or at the end of this, uh, how many will have it? It'll be, it'll be around 50-52, right? Yeah, you're right. Right now we have uh, 42 that are active, and then uh, 10 more will make it 52 in the city. So are are these red light camera intersections, are they making these intersections safer? Do you have any stats to back that up? Oh, yeah, for sure. They they uh, are really effective. Um, their, their main purpose is to reduce the number of uh, right angle collisions uh, at intersections. Right angle collisions are uh, very destructive type collisions where they often uh, result in injury. Uh, so, so, you know, that's the purpose of them. Um, obviously, a red, uh, sorry, a uh, right angle collision occurs when uh, someone runs a red light and strikes another vehicle in the intersection. So, our stats show that um, the use of red light cameras reduces right angle collisions by about 50% at intersections and then reduces uh, injury and fatal collisions at uh, intersections by about 41%. Wow. Um, is there an intersection in particular where we've seen a dramatic decline in these sorts of collisions? Oh, uh, I think um, it's pretty it's pretty standard across all the intersections. When we first install red light cameras at an intersection, that is when there, we have the highest reduction of, uh, of uh, red light running, that sort of thing, and right angle collisions. And then as people get used to and know that there's a red light camera at that intersection, then driver behavior starts to change. And then we see kind of stabilization and reduction of uh, violations at uh, intersections. How long does that behavior take to change? Is it a few weeks, a few months? Is it a year or a little bit more than that? It, it, takes, it takes a few months. To change behavior where we see the reduction so we see that influx initially and then it slowly kind of dips and then uh, you know maybe six months after installation then we see it uh, starting to stabilize essentially. We're talking about uh, red light cameras and more than coming to Hamilton intersections also uh, new locations for photo radar in the city and our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Mike Field acting director of transportation operations and maintenance with the city of Hamilton. How many people get tickets for running a red in this city? Is it a lot? Yeah, I've, I've got some stats. Uh, between 2020 and 2022, we've issued 59,000 violations uh, at red light cameras in the city. 
So that's in three years? Yep, between 2020 and 2022. That is a, I would have never guessed it was that much. Like that's that's almost 20,000 a year. It's considerable, yeah. So last year we had, um, uh, we issued uh, 19,131 violations. Um, that doesn't mean that all of those violations result in a ticket. That's how many uh, instances that the cameras identified and that goes through the provincial court system and they uh, manage the ticketing. Then just for some perspective of automated speed enforcement, the, the photo radar, we issued 16,292 uh, violations last year. So just back to the red light cameras, you mentioned that not all result in a ticket. Is there any information on how many do? What, what percentage do? Half? A, a bit more than that? It's a fairly high percentage. Um, the cameras are really accurate at picking up instances of red light running, um, but uh, the tickets or the, the photos have to go through a processing center to validate that uh, they've picked up all of the information that's uh, legally required to issue a ticket. Um, I don't have the percentage in front of me at this moment, but it's it's relatively high. So I would say the mass majority of those violations would equate to a ticket, but not 100% of them. So uh, if and when City Council rubber stamps this decision by the Public Works Committee, we're going to get 10 new red light camera intersections, if you will. Do we know where they are going? Yep. Um, if you like, I can list them out for you, but there's 10 new locations um, that we uh, we had in the report that we presented to uh, Public Works Committee this past week. Well, what I'm really interested in, I think people can go online to find out where they are, but how do you decide where to put these things? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it's driven by data. So like I mentioned earlier, we're really wanting to get rid of those uh, right angle collisions. So we analyze collision data that we collect, actively collect, and then we uh, use that information to help uh, select the sites. Um, and the selection process based on uh, highway safety manual, uh, it's a common practice that's used for all municipalities that, that have red light cameras. Um, and like I mentioned, the objective is to to reduce those those right angle collisions. So that's the main factor when we're looking at it is we're looking at or we're trying to find intersections where uh, right angle collisions and injuries are occurring most often. And that's a primary um, primary factor. There's some other geographical factors with the operation of the cameras themselves that has to have proper sight lines and space to install a camera and those sorts of things. Michael, I'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you for your time this morning and uh, good luck with this project. Thanks so much. Mike Field is the Acting Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. Yeah, 59,000 red light intersection violations over the last three years, basically 19, 20,000 per year. That is... That is a lot. There's no doubt about that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I can't believe 10 years ago this weekend. It was just a truck. It is just a truck. You don't need him. But I do. And our daughter needs her daddy back. That emotional plea from Charlene Bosma still today, you know, gives me chills. Hard to hear. May 9th, 2013, 10 years ago this Saturday, marks the disappearance, the anniversary of the disappearance and murder of Ancaster's Tim Bosma. You know the story. And if you don't, if you're new to the community or new, or new to the radio station, here's a 32-year-old Ancaster man who went missing on May 6, 2013. He was trying to sell his truck. Went on a test drive with a couple of guys who said they wanted to test drive the truck and buy the truck, perhaps. While he goes missing, days later, his remains are found in an incinerator on Dellen Millard's farm outside Waterloo. Millard and 
Co-accused Mark Smitch, convicted of first-degree murder in Bosma's death, both sentenced to life in prison, and now no chance of parole for 25 years. It was a captivating court case. And here to talk about it is an individual who covered the Tim Bosma murder trial for 900 CHML day in and day out in the courtroom at Johnson Pinka Courthouse, now the host of the Alex Pearson Show on Sister Station 640 Toronto. Alex Pearson joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Alex, good morning. Hey, morning, Rick. It's just, uh, I'm listening to you and it's uh, a decade. It's so hard to believe it's been a decade. It just feels like it was yesterday. I, I was thinking the same thing, like, you know, listening to the audio this morning, reliving what Charlene and the Bosma family mm-hmm. went through. It, it does mm-hmm. feel like it happened like days ago. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it gives you a, probably a pretty good understanding of what it's been like for that family um, who go through this every single day. And it doesn't stop. It just sits with them and stays with them. And, you know, we got to know them as the Bosma Army. And they are really very unique in the sense that they were able to pull together and, you know, try to make the best of a situation. And it was very clear that they were uh, close-knit. Um, but, but you know, I'd be... It, it, they got through that period, but, but I, I wonder often, you know, where is it taken them? What are their lives like now? Are they, are they able to, to be as positive as they were? Or, you know, given the fact that these issues certainly still... Uh, in the 10 years, Rick, continue to stay in the courts, just finishing up, obviously, the uh, appeals uh, recently. But it doesn't go away for them, you know? Absolutely. You mentioned the Bosma family, you know, distraught, destroyed, mm-hmm. two words that come to mind, but somehow they persevered. They were a beacon yeah. of light for many in the community. And, you know, Charlene, I know, has remarried, has moved away from this yeah. community and yeah. hopefully leading a much better life. But obviously this anniversary is going to be trying for her and her family. But let's sure. dive into the court case. What do you remember mm-hmm. most about being at that trial each and every day? Um, I remember, you know, um, just the demand, the the need for people to be there, certainly in Hamilton, because this rocked Hamilton, really. And uh, it was just the, the um, unquenchable thirst to want to see justice done in this case. I mean, it was one of those court cases that every single day it was packed. Um, and every day you would show up and every day you would pull back the pieces of this hideous story and just start to realize just how bad it was um you know and i remember not really knowing you know anyone at the beginning certainly but just getting to know the family certainly um and the players and how all of this impacted their lives whether it was the witnesses uh you know it, it was a it, it, it was a heady experience i remember when jeff brought me on to cover it and i covered a lot of court cases which i think was the reason why they thought, well, we'll throw her in. She, she can do this. I think we thought, well, maybe two, three months. And then, and then it went on a good six months. And from the first day, I remember driving in and, and then to the last day where we finally got the verdict and just kind of um, coming down off the story. It was just uh, th- those moments don't leave. Right. Like I think about them all the time. And, and I, I tell people often, because I'll hear from certain families or people who I talk to about their situation, you never forget. They, they, there's not a moment where I don't think about the bosses or I don't think they, they, they come into your mind, like my mind all the time. Um, so it's a period of my life, certainly, that I, I look back at a lot. And what made this investigation and, and really the trial so, yeah. you know, somber in one sense, but certainly captivating in another, yeah. is that, you know, the criminal trail left by Millard and Smitch that involved Millard's father, his former girlfriend, yeah. obviously the Bosmas. Yeah. There was a lot to, to take in. Absolutely. It was this kid who had everything, 
you know, spoiled kid, had every opportunity afforded to him, and yet it still wasn't enough for Dylan Millard, who ultimately turned out to be the biggest loser because, you know, he had to surround himself with losers uh, to, to drive his thrills, to do whatever it was. But, you know, it, it, the thing about the story is, Rick, it could have been anybody. I mean, Tim Bosnett just wanted to sell his truck so that he could, you know, take care of his family. I mean, who doesn't list a, a play, you know, something to sell in Kijiji or online? And yet for Tim Bosma, who ended up being, uh, I think it was the third uh, person to have a test drive with, with the two, um, you know, killers, you know, it, it could have been a couple of other people who, who also came face to face with them. So, so there's the, it could have been anybody, it, it, you know, it, a reminder of the dangers that lurk, even if you don't think they do. Um, it was the Dellen Marard who had everything and squandered it away to, to have thrill kills uh, as his um, life's uh, work. Um, you know, it was just, it, it's a pretty wild story in the sense that you can just have your life completely turned upside down. Uh, in such a nonsensical way, and uh, and really, um, and the other thing that sticks out to me, Rick, is this trial was the Tim Bosma trial. Normally, when you get a trial, it's named after the accused, so it'll be like the Smith trial or the Millard trial. This one was named after Tim Bosma, which I thought was uh, interesting because it always kept his name. It it was about you know Tim Bosma. Um, at that time, because that's what the trial was about. And then we would learn, obviously, about Laura Babcock, as well as Wayne Lord and the other two trials. But but it was the, it was the Tim Bosma trial. There was such a need for justice. And ten years ago, we're still yeah. we're still feeling it. Yeah. And uh, as a community, you know, we're never going to be the same because we we kind of lived through it, and certainly the Bosmas did as well. Alex, we'll have to leave it there. Mm. Thanks for reflecting on it with us this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, and my best. And, and you know what. My thoughts and always uh, are, are with the, the Bosma family because uh, they really are who, who this was about. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. Bye. Alex Pearson, host of The Alex Pearson Show on Sister Station 640 Toronto. She covered the Tim Bosma murder trial for 900 CHML 10 years ago. This Saturday, Tim Bosma disappeared and was later found murdered. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You probably heard that the federal government has finally, I say finally, passed the online streaming legislation known as Bill C-11. Oh, I'm sure you've heard about that. The Online Streaming Act. Uh, the question is, we've heard a lot about it, but what, what does it mean for Canadians? What does it mean for streaming services? What does it mean for content creators? Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us once again here on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. Let's start with the origin of this bill, because the government says we needed this update because it brings the Broadcasting Act into the new millennium. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. So let's talk about old broadcasting rather than new broadcasting. We're all familiar with networks like uh, CTV and Global and CBC. And uh, under the rules that are in place for those uh, organizations, 30% of the content they broadcast should be Canadian. Now, uh, what that means is because they produce content, if all they did was uh, rebroadcast existing content, the law wouldn't apply to them. But since they create new content, then as they create new content, 30% of it has to be Canadian. So long come the streaming services. Take your pick, whether it's Netflix or, or uh, uh, Disney Plus or whatever else you want to deal with. Originally, that's all they did was rebroadcast other people's content. 
So there was nothing to worry about. But then they started spending and spending heavily, meaning billions of dollars creating original content. And the minute they did that, of course, they weren't necessarily doing any Canadian content. And the federal government said, wait a minute, that's not fair. We've got to level the playing field. So whether you are a traditional broadcaster or somebody in this new generation, you need to catch up. And that's the origin of this bill. First talked about back pre-COVID 2019, finally introduced a year ago. Uh, and even then it's gone through many rounds of iterations and changes before they finally passed something just about a week ago. So what does it mean for Canadians, the streaming services themselves and content creators, those people who, you know, make videos, put them on YouTube, share them on TikTok or, or broadcast them out on things like Twitch? What does it mean for these three entities? Right. So it depends. It depends who you are. <laughs> so suppose I'm just Marvin Ryder and I uh, occasionally post a video or two of my dog running around the house or maybe I've got something to say on an issue. It means nothing to me. So the, the new bill, C-11, is not supposed to affect individuals posting whatever personal content they do. What it means to the streaming services themselves is they are now supposed to do 30% uh, of what they're producing is to be Canadian content. Now, that sounds not such like such a bad thing. The problem is, first, how do you define Canadian content? Is that uh, content that stars Canadian actors? Was it written by a Canadian? Was it shot in Canada? It's also supposed to be uh, in English. Some of it should be in French. Some of it should be in native languages, First Nations languages. How much of each of those are you supposed to do? Uh, if, I, if I shoot something in Canada but was written by American, does that still count? And the bill is not clear on this at all. In fact, it's handed to the CRTC the responsibility to come up with sort of the operational definitions of what is Canadian content. Do we expect at the end of the day to pay more for this stuff? You and I are not supposed to pay more for this stuff. What the idea is, if, if I'm spending a billion dollars creating content, then 300 million of what I'm spending on should be Canadian content. The other 70, 700 million could be traditional content from anywhere in the world. But it's to try to make sure that, that if you are a Canadian subscribing to these services and these services are producing content, you'd have some Canadian choices. Now, everyone's confused. No one's clear what it means. For sure, some of these streaming services have said, well, this is going to be additional spending because I don't want to cut back on what I'm spending in the United States. So you're now making me divert some of my spending into creating this Canadian content. The Canadian government has said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You can just reallocate what you have. But but I'm, you know, Rick, the bottom line is uh, inflation being what it is. We always pay a little bit more for whatever it is we're used to. And I think we'll see some of that here for sure. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us this morning and enjoy your day. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. I can envision, and we, we just went through this with things like Netflix, a, a bump in how much it costs to have a subscription. Because now if you're asking... Uh, the Netflixes of the worlds, the the Amazon Prime videos, the Disney Plus, the list goes on and on, to say, hey, listen, now you have to either create content that fits within our online streaming acts that has a little bit of Canadiana to it, uh, or 
uh, you know, you have to uh, broadcast more of it. Uh, I would imagine from their end, from the business side of, uh, of things, it's going to cost them more to deliver this service, to execute what the Online Streaming Act is asking them to do. And you know what that means. We're going to have to dig a little deeper into our pocket. I am sure that is going to be uh, the impact. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This weekend, one of my favorite weekends on the calendar because, well, there's an event that a few years ago I attended for the first time. And I thought, wow, this is this is awesome. It's called Doors Open Hamilton. You've probably heard about it. You've probably attended it yourself in years gone by. Well, this year, 38 local buildings and seven guided tours led by local historians are going to make this weekend a whole lot of fun. It runs Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And this year's theme is food. So, yes, I am very much interested in what's happening this weekend. Here to talk about it is Shannon Kyles, the chair of Doors Open Hamilton's 2023 committee. Shannon, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? I'm just great. Wonderful for you to have me this morning. What is new this year, if anything? Well, we decided that this year we would focus on the um, private entrepreneurs who have put their own time and effort and money into restoring old buildings and then opening them up for restaurants or grocery stores or something that is food-related. So why was that important? Why was that the focus that you wanted to make this year? Is it just, you know, post-pandemic, a lot of these... Uh, entities, uh, organizations, companies uh, had, a, had a tough time during the pandemic and you want to give them maybe a high five to say, hey, congrats on making it through the other side. Well, certainly that's part of it. But also, on the other hand, um, there's an awful lot of old buildings out there that are in really good shape and they have character and they have pizzazz and they're absolutely perfect for restoration for small businesses. And um, the more that the individual saves the old buildings, um, the more the city centers and all of the economic sort of centers of, of little areas and, and communities will be preserved in it in their original and they'll have much more character than you know large malls are fantastic but you want to have those little strips of old places that are all sort of thriving in the middle of the city don't you mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh, part of uh, open doors hamilton this weekend and and again the theme is food uh, there's a hamilton eateries tour there's a dundas eateries tour is is food going to be part of the fun this weekend no, um, there won't be any food that's actually available. Um, part, partly that's because most of the in, individual businesses are, will still be running. But there will be um, special treats that are available um, for purchase at some of the little shops. Like Nellie James is doing some wraps that are going to be fantastic. And um, Piconi's, of course, always has fantastic food. And then Relay Coffee is going to be there with all sorts of fabulous croissants, etc. But, it, you know, there won't be any sort of trays of food. That's a whole other sort of festival. you got um, some local historians that are helping out uh, this year again. This is an important part of the whole open doors, uh, you know, scenario, because you really learn about the history of these buildings and the architecture and and who lived there or who worked there. This is a a huge part of the whole experience. Yes, it certainly is. And there's really a lot of good stories. For example, the Mulberry Cafe that a lot of people sort of hang out at, it used to be the hotel for um, for the armories across the street. So it used to be where all the military guys would hang out. And all, all along James Street, all of those old buildings, very few of them were actually restaurants. And they've been taken over in Rapscallion, for example, is a fantastic restaurant. And um, it, it used to be, you know, a, really a variety of things over the last hundred years. 
Shannon Kyles is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon is the chair of Doors Open Hamilton 2023 committee. You can find out all the information online at doorsopenontario.ca or just Google Doors Open Hamilton. Why has Doors Open become so popular? Well, I think a lot of people are getting more engaged in where they live. You know, a, a, a great many people love Ockmar. It's just sort of the fantasy of the whole thing, and that's open this weekend, both days. And then um, seeing some of the old museums like uh, Field Coat or um, Erland Lee, and these are old houses that people used to actually live in, and they're still intact, and they're still in their beautiful surroundings. And it's just sort of nice to get out and, and see what life used to be like in Ontario. Um, a lot of great stuff happening also in Green Ventures. So if you're starting your garden this year, they have all the information that you might need. And this is in an old 1800s Georgian building. It's really fun. Is there any chance this becomes more than an annual event, maybe a spring and a fall type of thing? No. Um, and one of the reasons is that um, there are, I think it's 37 different events happening across Ontario. So Doors Open is happening in, it happened in Guelph last weekend, and it's happening in Hamilton this weekend, and then two weeks in, two weekends it's in Toronto, and then you've got Barrie and Aurelia and Chatham, and all across the province are having it. So you can go to different parts of the province. In fact, it's an international event, and friends of mine in England go to Brussels every year to see the Art Nouveau Doors Open. Oh, wow. Uh, I know, exciting. I'm yeah. going next year. Oh, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, here in Hamilton, there are nearly 40 local buildings that people can visit. Do you have a favorite among the 36, 38 buildings that are going to be toured around this uh, this weekend? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, possibly my favorite. I think this year my favorite would be the Dundas Strip, like Peconis. Peconis in Dundas is the longest-running family-owned and operated grocery store in Canada. And it's got the most incredible food, and they've redone the full... The, a lot of the older places are redoing their storefronts um, back to what the Victorians would have had it looking like. And it's just an incredible shop. That sounds like a lot of fun. Shannon, thanks for the time today. Uh, best of luck this weekend. Thank you so much, and thanks for your interest. You got it. Shannon Kyles is the chair of Doors Open Hamilton's 2023 committee. Online, doorsopenontario.ca. And there are, as I mentioned, nearly 40 buildings that you can visit, like Akmar Mansion, which is one of the highlights for me. Uh, Dundurn Castle, another amazing tour. I mentioned the eateries tour in, in places like Dundas and Hamilton. Uh, the Keeping Room, the Hamilton Water Environmental Lab, uh, McMaster University's campus architecture tour, uh, Erlen Lee Museum, as uh, Shannon mentioned as well, the Dundas Music Hall, and the list goes on and on and on. It should be a fantastic weekend. And the weather is going to be spectacular as well, so you won't have to battle the rain or carrying around an umbrella. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. S-E-X once again here on GMH on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you on this beautiful day in Hamilton. Well, speaking of sex, how about the end of sex. Oh no, we don't want that, do we? Well, it is the title of a new movie that was filmed right here in Hamilton. How often would you say you and Emma are having an orgasm? A, once a day, B, twice a day, or C, you're constantly in an orgasmic fog. The minimum in there is, is, is once a day. 
That'd be my question, too. Well, this movie has opened in North American theaters, did so over the weekend, and there is a special hometown screening planned at the Westdale Theater tonight. Here to talk about it is Chris Giroux, the head of production at Vortex Productions and a Hamilton-based producer of The End of Sex. Chris, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I have watched the trailer. It looks absolutely fantastic. Tell us about this film. Yeah, it's it's a pretty sweet kind of um, rom-com that we kind of put together here and shot it last year in Hamilton last January. And, you know, I know that the title sometimes is, you know, a little intimidating to see the word sex in a title, but, it, you know, it's, it's a 14A movie and it's got a lot of heart and it's really about a couple... Um, you know, who's in their 40s with two children and, you know, looking for that, you know, next step in their relationship as their relationship grows. You know, they've hit a bit of a dry patch and uh, they're looking to, you know, spice up their relationship and really find what their relationship means to each other. It stars uh, Emily Hampshire, uh, Stevie from Schitt's Creek and uh, Jonas Chernick, who, who wrote the script and stars opposite Emily. Talk about their chemistry on screen. Yeah, they're fantastic. And they've done other projects together. They did a movie called My Awkward Sexual Adventure 10 years ago. And, you know, we really kind of consider this, uh, you know, a spiritual sequel in a sense, because that was really about, you know, people in their late 20s, early 30s, um, you know, kind of going on that dating journey. And uh, they play brand new characters in this film. And, you know, it's kind of more of a spiritual sequel. But now you find their chemistry carries uh, into this film. So for those people who live in this city or are from this city and watch this movie, where are some of the places that they'll instantly recognize because you filmed this in Hamilton? Yeah, we filmed the whole the whole film in Hamilton. There's a few little shots here and there. The director's from Winnipeg, so he threw a little, you know, Winnipeg style in here and there. But the entire principal photography was here in Hamilton. And you'll notice the skyline, the downtown core. We were on James Street. We were really jumping all over the city on this one. Why has filming in Hamilton been such a boom for filmmakers? Because we're seeing so many people come here to make movies. Yeah, I think the the city itself is very accessible and kind of has so many different locations within a very small driving distance. You know, you can have wineries, you can have, you know, cute kind of Victorian houses, you can have more industrial areas. It really offers a, a blank slate for filmmakers and for artists to come. And the city is very welcoming and it's really seen a boom, you know, from shows and studios like Netflix to, you know, Vortex Productions. We've shot uh, almost 20 movies here in the last uh, three and a half years. So it's really been a, a real kind of boom to see in the city. And before, if you were a filmmaker or working in the industry, Toronto was really the, the the main place in Ontario to kind of be. And now you've kind of seen, you know, booms in Hamilton, booms in North Bay, booms in London, Ontario, booms in Ottawa, which has been really amazing to see um, that, you know, smaller cities, not just Toronto, um, have a real rich art scene to, you know, foster that film community. Yeah, we're certainly seeing that out west as well with a show like The Last of Us on HBO filming in Alberta and, you know, going out to BC, which is awesome to hear. Chris Deru is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Chris is the uh, head of production at Vortex Productions and a Hamilton-based producer of The End of Sex. So you're, you're on set. There must be a, you know, a pride factor filming in Hamilton, being from here and, and you know, making this movie in your hometown. Absolutely. It, it's been, you know, such a joy to see, you know, a, a, an independent film like ours 
um, you know, shot here, produced here. We did all the prep work and, you know, all the filming here. And then to see it kind of take its own, take on its own life and, and show across Canada, across the U.S. It'll be coming to other countries in the coming months as well. And, you know, it starts off just an idea, just, you know, some words on a paper and, and then it blossoms into this thing that kind of becomes, you know, bigger than every crew member, every cast member. It kind of takes on the shape of its own. So to see this movie shot in Hamilton, playing in theaters in, you know, New York, just south of town, uh, Times Square, and to see it in L.A., it's it's really amazing to see it kind of go through those different stages. I've, re- I've read a couple of reviews about this movie, all positive stuff too, which is great to see. And, and one headline in particular was in the New York Times, uh, the end of sex review when domesticity kills the mood. That kind of encapsulated, encapsulates it in a nutshell. Absolutely. Chris, uh, hey, good luck with this. It looks like a fantastic film. I'll be checking it out this coming weekend. Appreciate the time and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks so much for having me. Chris Giroux is the head of production at Vortex Productions and a Hamilton-based producer with uh, The End of Sex. It does look like a really funny, uh, funny movie. And uh, yeah, check it out this, this weekend. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Leafs fans certainly waking up to this tune in their head, I am sure. After all, the hype of a six-game series win over Tampa Bay in which they vaulted into the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for the first time in nearly two decades. Leafs fans, I think, were quite confident knowing that they were going to play Florida in round two as opposed to the Bruins in round two. But, hey, Florida came to play last night. Brody comes across. He's trapped. Here's a break for Hagee. Scores! And a counterpunch by Florida. And they're back in the lead. And the Panthers held on to that lead and won that hockey game last night 4-2 to take a 1-0 series lead. And, and the question is, is Toronto the Stanley Cup favorite that oddsmakers are making them out to be? Brian Murphy is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Brian is an NHL content producer with the Sporting News and joins us now on GMH. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Doing well. Doing, I think, a little bit better than Leafs fans are this morning. <laughs> yeah, that is for sure. Fans really ate up the frantic pace of the first period last night, and really a period in which Toronto could have scored a couple of power play goals, but instead it was Florida who had a one nothing lead. How big of a goal was it for the Panthers to get and hold the Leafs in check in that first period? Well, it was huge and obviously able to fight off the early storm they got by the Leafs, taking a couple of penalties in the first five minutes of the game. It was a chance for the Leafs to kind of grab a hold of this game and and get out to a good start, and they weren't able to do that. And the Panthers at five on five were able to take over the game a little bit. They pushed the pace at the back half of that period and able to get the opening goal by Nick Cousins, which when you're on the road, especially in Toronto in a playoff series, it's absolutely critical to be the team that scores first, especially considering in their first series against Boston, the team that scored first won the game in all seven. So absolutely pivotal to get that first goal. Critical performer last night for Florida, without a doubt, was goaltender Sergei Bobrovsky. He makes 34 saves, many of them of the outstanding variety. When he's going, this team is is a serious contender to challenge for the Cup. 
Absolutely. We've seen teams bled by Sergei Bobrovsky make deep runs before. He was that goalie for the Blue Jackets team that knocked out the 2019 Lightning team. He's doing it again here in 2023. This is a guy that's got two Vesnas to his name, so he has it in him. Obviously, it hasn't actually been really on a consistent level in his time in Florida, but when he is on, he is one of the better goaltenders in this league. And as we're seeing right now with the Panthers, they're riding the hot hand, and so far, Bob has been absolutely scorching hot through these playoffs and this was a game too and usually you know in the playoffs when your best players play at their best you're going to win the game and when you go down the list of whether it's Matthew Kachuk with three assists uh, Sam Bennett with a goal and assist uh, Montour, Verhage, Cousins, Barkov they all played a great game and that translated into a great result for Florida Exactly. And this wasn't going to be surprising the way that they were going to have to win. It was going to be to have to outwork the Leafs. It's what they did in the first series against the Bruins. They might not be more talent. They might have less talent than their opponents, but they're going to outwork, out hustle. And I thought that that's exactly what they did. And the stars for the Maple Leafs, who showed up throughout the entire series for the Lightning, I thought were very quiet in game one. You had obviously the first goal by Matthew Nyes scoring on that line with Austin Matthews. But for the most part, it wasn't really noticeable. I thought William Nylander had a good game. He uses his speed. But it was the Panthers guys that showed up much more than Maple Leafs. And like you said, you need your stars to shine in order to find success in the postseason. The Panthers stars showed up just a little bit more than the Maple Leafs did. Yeah, I would give, you know, I would give a, a check mark to uh, a guy like Matthews who had a couple of scoring chances. Uh, you, 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 know, you mentioned a guy like Willie Nylander who maybe wasn't as noticeable in the first period, but certainly uh, you know, made some nice plays later on. Uh, but when you look at guys like uh, Tavares and Marner and Riley, I mean, those guys really came to the fore in round one, not so much in last night's game. Uh, Ilya Samsonov as well, four goals on 28 shots, not the performance you need to win in the playoffs. So the question is, what changes or what, what do the Leafs do differently tomorrow night in game two? I don't think it's a ton of that they're going to do differently. What they need to do is capitalize on their opportunities. Uh, obviously, they're going to get power plays. Florida is an undisciplined team. They play the style that they have. They're going to take penalties. They're going to go down. And for the Maple Leafs and their power play, it's just too good for it to disappoint them. And I thought that it disappointed them, especially in the first period of last night's game. Like I said, two power plays in the first few minutes, an opportunity to build a one or even two goal lead, and they failed to do that. They're going to get their chances. As Paul Maurice said after the game, Florida's kind of accepted that they're going to have more power plays or more penalties called on them in a game than their opponents. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with their doing, not necessarily the officials, but it's a thing where the Maple Leafs have such a good power play. We're talking about the number two ranked unit going into the playoffs. It has to come through better throughout the rest of the series than it did in game one. We got 45 seconds. There's one other Canadian team in the playoffs, and that's the high-octane Edmonton Oilers. They're going up against Vegas. In, in 30 seconds, which team do you like better in the series? I really like the Oilers. I think their offense is just going to be too much for the Golden Knights to contain, especially with uh, Laurent Bressois did take over for the Vegas crease after that was a big question mark, but I just don't see him as a bona fide guy. I think the Oilers offense is going to be too much for the Golden Knights to handle, and I think especially with going into this series and how hot Leon Dreisettle and Connor McDavid are, I've got the Oilers taking this one and going back to the Western Conference Final. That's going to be a fun series to watch. Brian, thanks for the time this morning. Enjoy your day. 
Of course, Rick, you as well. Thank you. Brian Murphy is in an NHL content producer with the Sporting News. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And and make sure you rate and review.